when I was younger, the only like palette of color I could think of was you know dodgy nagra. But then as I started like meeting other palettes of color, then like I could write about brownness in a way that is like not just for white people. So just having like another brown person in this really white posh seeming world of poetry was like oh my god. Hi everyone, welcome back to Cozy Combos, a show addressing important subjects without intimidation. Miranam Hedrhe. Today's convo is with Sio, a 19-year-old poet and director of Zindabad Zine. Zindabad Zine is a publication dedicated to diaspora and diasporic communities. Now, diaspora means it's settling outside of your country. You know, you get a lot of people who come from one country and then they go to another. That's kind of what diaspora means. It's a new word for me too, but it kind of encapsulates and explains quite a lot about my personal existence in England. Now, the Indian diaspora is thought to be the largest. Um, Following up from that, I believe, is China and the Mexican diaspora. Now, as a first year student at Oxford, Sia felt disillusioned, lonely, and lost in the world like quite a lot of us. And that's where the inspiration for starting Zindabad Zine sort of came from. It has since attracted the attention of hundreds of people around the world who seem to connect with this shared idea of feeling lost, wanting to connect with their roots, but not really sure how to. It's an idea that hits very close to me home, which is why I was so excited to speak to Sio. This is actually the first episode that I ever did for Cozy Convos, and I'm so glad that it was about these subjects and it was with someone as modest and humble as Sio. Honestly, you don't meet many people who are so modest and are really doing things for the right reasons rather than egos. And it was very refreshing to see somebody so young have such initiative and drive. And you can definitely tell quite a lot of kindness also towards her readers and contributors towards her magazine. It's a conversation I hope hits home for other people too, as much as it did for me. Uh, talking about a lot of these issues, you know, it made me realize how much I've never really seen them be publicized before. So I started off this convo by asking Sia a very easy question, which is, what does diaspora mean to her? And why was diaspora the inspiration for her publication? Basically, when I started this zine, I was like, I want it to be for a specific group of people, but I couldn't really figure out who. So I was thinking about Burnt Ruti, whether it's Sharon Wells Mag, which is for South Asian people, or Gaudem, which is for people of colour. And I was trying to kind of think, what communities am I part of? Who could I have this for? And I was thinking about South Asianness and whether I could have a zine about South Asianness. And I was like, how like brown actually am I? Like my brownness compared to like how my cousins experience their brownness in India is like completely far removed from each other. I don't know how far you can even say they are the same thing. And it feels like almost like a joke to be like, I am Indian, I am Punjabi in the same way that they are. Mm. And I was thinking about like how so much of the way I experience like my culture is through like my parents and their like what was cool when they were younger and how as someone who is like third culture or like in diaspora I guess it's so easy to like romanticize things that are like so irrelevant to anyone like I remember I think last time we spoke we were talking about the Ali Khan and mm-hmm. how I can listen to his qualities and be like oh my god these are amazing but any other like 19 or an India will be like what is wrong with you yeah <laughs> you listen to them at your age so I wanted to kind of lean into that being removed and having like being removed from a culture but that in itself being a culture in itself instead of being something that is half I guess both not half do you know what I mean yeah no no I definitely know what you mean 100% and I think um what strikes me about what you just said is that this sort of existential crisis 
that a lot of brown people sort of go through where it's like how yeah. how brown am I it's definitely mm. something that I feel like I got interrogated a lot growing up and it was always sort of brought up to me in the sense of like oh you're not how Asian people are like you act yeah. very white or I'd have white people say you're really one of us and I didn't know how to feel about it like these ideas of being white or brown especially when you're growing up are just so arbitrary like or you know it's a very point blank case of hey well I'm brown skinned you're white skinned what does it mean to act white mm-hmm. and then it became a source of increasing shame and then people who mm-hmm. would speak Urdu or Punjabi very fluently would be like what you don't even know your own language that well and it's like yeah I mean coconut yeah coconut <laughs> about yeah all of them yeah and it's yeah. like they're funny because like even if you say you know that's not funny that's actually racist it sounds like you just can't take a joke because calling someone yeah. a coconut objectively is hilarious but like it but embedded in that is this sort of whole question of how brown am i and someone has noticed that i'm not brown enough and i'm not even old enough to even know what that means so i mean was yeah. that something that you you grew up with was it was it a regular thing that you felt interrogated by um about how brown you were yeah also especially because like my dad was born here but my mom wasn't so having like that mixed kind of view of like what brownness actually means in terms of like even like the music we listen to in the house or like the films we were watching do you know what I mean of like who like who am I more like more closely aligned with especially when like most of my friends in school are white mm. and like to them they they don't they would never pick up on the difference between them because it kind of feels the same to them like when I'm thinking about how brown actually am I who is setting the parameters for that yeah. who gets to decide and who am I actually doing it for like I'm thinking of in again like Sharon Dhaliwal's new book she has an interview with Zarina Muhammad where they talk about diaspora art and how you know there was that thing in like 2017 of like girls wearing like saris with jeans or wearing like bindis with pretty bindis little thick dresses where festivals. she was like who are you doing this for because you would never like wake up in the morning and be like what am I gonna wear a sari with jeans no you wouldn't mm, this is yeah. performative and she like kind of argues sort of that this is like just sort of like reassert your brownness to white people in a way that doesn't really make sense because they don't really care no they don't really care yeah and it's like they don't even really recognize the differences between a pakistani or a bengali yeah. or, Indi- or in even saying indian for someone who yeah. is from india there's so many different dialects and different languages and different mm. locations they're so different from each other um it's strange actually because um I feel like to an extent the West's view of India is a twofold thing. They don't want to, they have a very uh, blase sort of reductive view of what Indians are as just being sort of brown people. But then this fetishization as well of, you know, yoga and, you know, realign your chakras. And there's elements that they really fetishize, I think, and then then elements that they don't. And I think maybe this has always been happening because, you know, the Beatles were going over (laughs) India to do transcendental meditation in the 70s or 60s or whatever, whenever it was. Um, But I felt like growing up, like uh, being brown was one of those things where it did feel like I didn't fit in anywhere. And as time's gone on, um, it just feels like it's become more of a fetishized thing. Um, Yeah, it's orientalizing, isn't it? That's it. I remember when a couple of years ago when Britain's Got Talent, when there was that guy who did Pongra with the, and they re- he did Mundi on the with, and they released like a version with Jay Z. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Okay. <laughs> there was like this weird joke act on Britain's Got Talent where this guy was dancing, and then this guy, come, other guy comes, 
like halfway in between he starts doing punga and it's really funny because yeah. you're like oh my god it's this funny brown guy with a beard and a turban i remember like when i was little seeing that on tv and being like this is so far removed from my experience of brownness that it feels almost irrelevant to see all these white people laughing at this guy on tv and being like this is so funny and just being like this is completely irrelevant to me mm. this is what people see when they see me yeah definitely and it, and i think it shows that this is what this is kind of the new sort of paradigm that happens with because mm. with me it's the same sort of deal where my dad uh was born in england but my mom you know wasn't um but we sort of embody both perspectives right like the western mm. perspective and the you know the 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 center of being brown and having these two sort of conflict with each other a lot of the time is just quite frankly a mindfuck to be honest it's so <laughs> it's strange because we can see that britain's got talent sort of situation from the western perspective and being like oh look they find it funny they find it you know like ridiculous almost mm. but then you also see it from the brown perspective like well everyone that's close to me and my family and and this is you know i look in the mirror i see a brown person like having that yeah. is so, so difficult to navigate especially when i find a lot of the resources aren't there to to handle mm. uh sort of like you know double colonial life i don't know there's not even a word for it really yeah it is weird and like how are you supposed to navigate that and especially like if you're in it when you're like with your friends who are brown versus your friends who are white and you're like i don't know if i should be laughing right now i don't know if i should be explaining this like yeah definitely yeah. and um i think um despite the obviously like i said being differences of being pakistani bengali indian iranian uh turkish like i, I still feel like there is a sense in which because we're brown in england there's a mm. u unity like almost those discrepancies sort of don't like maybe back ho in the homelands like that matters a lot like that there's beef yeah. you know but here it's sort of like hey we're you know we're kind of the same here like it's a similar experience yeah i'm really intrigued i was just thinking like a minute ago about like when you were using the word brown and how that is so loaded here compared like i feel like that can like the concept of brownness can kind of only exist in diaspora it can only exist in relation to whiteness yeah I don't know if that's a big intellectual thought. Like, wait a minute. No, it's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. Because um, I think it's also, it's this idea of like black, like, you know, people who are living in um, Ethiopia, for example, don't, wouldn't see themselves as black. It's 100% like this, this Western sort of lens because, you know, the we can get into the whole idea of, you know, race doesn't exist. And, yeah, race you know, does not exist. Yeah. But like Fair being enough. brown is not something that we grew up seeing ourselves as. It's mm. a whole thing that we've come to have to identify with. I feel like it's almost mm. forced on me to be like, okay, what do you think about brownness? And I've got to have an opinion on it. I can't just be like, well, I'm going to carry on being Hader. I'm going to carry on doing my thing. And no nuance only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like we are we are sort of we are forced to sort of think about it especially when not just white people but also brown people around us call that into question all the time mm. um is that sort of the inspiration behind zindabad sort of trying to figure out a way that people like us can sort of have a space kind of i yeah at the beginning i was like i want this to be just for south asian diaspora but then it kind of expanded as i started reading more and like I got quite this is I started it during 2020 lockdown like end of lockdown so like December 2020 that around that time when cases were going up and everything seemed really bleak and I got quite into visual art and looking at how like different diaspora experiences overlap but also converge hugely like I think it'd be a massive like 
of reciprocation to be like this is a diaspora zine because everyone in any diaspora has the exact same experience and we can all hold hands and be in one giant big diaspora family that shares poetry and food which would be amazing obviously mm. but I also wanted to give a space to kind of articulate how stuff like is the same but different like I'm thinking in I think it's an issue too there's a piece about cut fruit you know that like diaspora stereotype of like when you're studying late at night and your mom comes up to your room with a plate of cut fruit and it's like <laughs> do you know what I mean I know what you mean but I've never heard yeah. that like is that a thing people say that's a, that's a stereotype I saw a tiktok with this girl who was like rating fruits your mom gives you and she was like if she gives you melons what was it that was like if she gives you like proper ripe mango it means she's done something wrong and she's trying to apologize but she doesn't have the vocabulary for it so she's bringing you that's so loaded <laughs> like i didn't realize damn yeah i thought that was a south asian thing but there was someone who was in east asian diaspora who wrote a piece about that and their like kind of relationship with their parents or oh, i was at a zine fair selling the bud and this old caribbean guy like maybe in his 50s or 60s, wandered in not knowing what the event was. And he was like, oh my God, my mom used to do that for me. And he was just telling me about it. So I wanted to kind of, yeah, create a space to honour how stuff overlaps, but also is unique and like different in its own right, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And um, I actually noticed, I can't remember where I read it, but you use the term sort of third culture as well. Mm. And I've never seen that term before, but I... I felt like I intuitively grasped it in a sense. Like, I feel like mm. I knew what you were talking about. But I guess, what what did you mean by sort of talking about third culture? That was a term I only kind of picked up on maybe like a year or two into starting the bud. Like, it took me a while to find it and I'm glad I did. But it just felt like a really kind of neat way of encapsulating where instead of being like, my culture is a mix of two things, I want to kind of argue like diaspora basically means you have like a third one that is new and kind of unique in its own right it's not just like what's the word like frankenstein together it's not like incomplete or like completely reliant on other things it is obviously reliant on other cultures but i think diaspora culture is almost unique in itself like the i saw you commented on it by the way i thought that was really lovely the madagasin photography series yes i was thinking about how like that is such a good example of a third culture in itself in its own right that has its own aesthetic its own language instead of just being like oh it's just 50 50 other things yeah absolutely and i think um like uh with uh his work like i noticed that he was um older and he must have mm. i mean i'm not trying to assume what generation he's in but c- <laughs> certainly like growing up in england where racism against brown people was just horrendous um mm. i'd still argue that in many ways it is i think my view of racism in general is that the problem doesn't necessarily go away it just manifests into different forms and you know yeah. it's not like there's lesser racism you know even people who say there's like you know it's more subconscious racism it's, it's still racism at the end of the day it's still yeah. the same force um but i mean anyway I, I thought it was interesting that you know he uh could interpret a lot of that into his art like he he can mm. sort of show that this sort of issue of um, being third culture is something that has been um, a thing that's been, you know, something to think about for a while if you yeah. had brown people in the 60s, 70s also wrestling with the same problems. And I, I think it's quite unfortunate, actually, that it's still a novel idea to make a zine or make a space that addresses, di- you know, brown people diaspora, I guess, um, mm. in 2022 of all times. Like, there hasn't been this framework or this sense of larger community to honour, not 
just you know um british indian uh, communities or british pakistani communities but like you say there's this third culture community like that's not really been completely investigated in my opinion yeah i think there are mags that have kind of done bits towards it i am especially burn deep but i wanted something that yeah just focused on like third culturedness in in particular because that wasn't something i'd ever seen articulated like you were saying yeah yeah and um so i'm imagining that you're in your uni dorm around when did you start it i started it in december 2020 i think i started it on christmas eve or on boxing day like around that week because i'd come home from uni and i was feeling kind of disillusioned let's say because i'd started uni in september or like october of that time 2020 where we were in lockdown, we were in these like tiny households, you couldn't really go out and meet people. And I think this is naive, but I'd had this vision. I was like, I'm gonna go to uni, I wanna find my people, I'm gonna do all these like cool creative projects, gonna have all these resources, but I just didn't because yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah. And I'd had a Canva account and I was like messing around on it and I'd made a little zine just for myself that had a page on it called that was you know the Simps the Homer Simpsons the Simpsons meme where he like Homer Simpson goes to work and he gets um what's his name the like rich bald guy uh Mr Burns Mr Burns yeah. like, he puts that thing on his desk that says don't forget you'll be here forever oh yeah yeah and he covers up with pictures of Maggie so it says do it for her yeah I made like a little edit in my zine that was that with pictures of Zadie Smith like the writer because I really like her writing yeah and I titled it Zadie Smith is in love world because I thought it'd be funny yeah. Also, for anyone who doesn't know, Zinabi Bud means like long live. I was basically saying long live Zadie Smith. And I was just like sitting with that idea of like the words in Bud, and I was like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm, I could go somewhere with this. So I just made like a campo graphic. And then in the evening, I tweeted like, I want to start a zine. Email this email address if you have anything that you'd like by this date. And then it kind of just took off from there. Wow, and how many, I mean, not the exact number, but did you get a lot of, like, emails? Yeah, I got way more submissions than I could have imagined, but I ended up converting it to a Google form because just the notifications were making me anxious. Yeah. It was kind of crazy. I only had submissions open for about a month, but I had, like, a full spreadsheet of all this art and writing, and I did an interview with someone for it, like, from people around the world, which is insane. Like, a lot of them were just, like, people I knew or, like, be friends of people I knew yeah but a lot of them were just like I just saw this on Twitter and thought it was cool and and it's amazing that you know you can immediately have that reach from just like mm. a, a, a meme <laughs> <laughs> and literally I think the original tweet was just like I'm starting a tweet uh not a tweet I'm starting a zine for people who use diaspora power as an insult as an and insult then it kind of just, as an insult you know like diaspora poet diaspora poetry no Oh boy, you know those, I guess it was a bigger thing in like 2017, 2018 and the sort of Tumblr renaissance of South Asian diaspora. You know people who write poems that are like, mm, the mangoes that taste like my homeland. No. Just like all these stereotypes. <laughs> or all their poems that are like, and he asks me, where are you from? But like, where are you from from? Oh, okay. I mean, I've had people say things like that to me, but I didn't realise this was a thing in, like, an art movement, like poetry, that it was, like, a negative thing. Yeah, I think it can be a negative negative thing, but that one of the reasons I started in the book was, like, I don't think this is a negative thing. Why are we shitting on this? Like...
you edited every submission in this, right? Yeah, in the first two issues. Yeah, and how how was that process? Because editing non-fiction articles or something that's sort of not true, that's, I mean, it's not easy, but it's sort of like, well, I know what I can do to make that better. But someone's very personal writings, which, I mean, a lot of this is, like it's um, like poetry and very, very heartfelt, visceral, raw uh, writings from people's hearts. Like how, like, how do you go about editing that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think because I had kind of have a background in poetry and tiny bit of spoken word until I was like 14, 15. So I kind wow. of knew what I was doing with writing it, but I don't think I'd ever edited properly until I started in love word. Mm-hmm. And I think the first when I started it, I was on a team for a mag at uni where we edited some poems. So that did kind of help. But I literally started off by being like, I don't when I like edited stuff, I would be like, I'm not your English teacher. I'm not trying to like correct your grammar or like underline it with a red pen I'm like you give me something which I think is really good and I want to work with you on making it even better so like um for example how could you make this line break more surprising or more effective or what is why have you used this word here what other words could we use there instead why don't we change the order of this it sounds so weird to like I don't know how to talk about it theoretically without sounding so wanky and being like, but what is the meaning of this poem? What are you actually trying to do with it? <laughs> but I think I do really enjoy like just sitting with a piece of text really closely and almost like, I think because I study English Lit, analysing text feels like quite natural to me. Mm. So like being able to actually like put my hand in it and being like, what if we changed it like this? It's fun yeah. <laughs> for me. I mean, I don't think it sounds like wankery at all. I guess because I have to edit like cozy. I I mm. sort of did the same thing where I was editing people's submissions, and it's like, firstly, like, wow, I can't believe that somebody wants to share this article yeah. with something that I made. Like I, that that surreal sense of gratitude never dies. I think even when we get a submission or a registration, like now, I'm like, what? You actually care about this? Like, you know, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy. You it to me? Yeah, to me to to, to deal me. with. Yeah. <laughs> And I feel like there is that sense of like, I almost feel implored to, you know, do the best that I can. But rather than just sort of like, you know, following or or correcting grammatical mistakes, I do feel somewhat bad. But at the same time, there is a sense of, I really think that you are saying something really great here, really powerful um, that Mm -hmm. I felt. But with just a little bit of tweaking, you can really get this uh, to go forward. And I feel like it's almost like it's, it's definitely to bring to help bring out someone's own voice without putting your own voice over it I think that's a really tricky thing to do but a really rewarding thing when done because Mm. I think when I do correct people's writings like some people who uh we get submissions from people whose uh English isn't their first language and there's Mm. mistakes everywhere but what they're saying is is amazing and I think and Mm. and I can already see when they submit something again the writing has improved dramatically and I think those things are really really rewarding it is really lovely especially when for a lot of the poetry ones if there's like something I'm trying to edit but I don't know how to articulate it if I'm like here is something else that you might like and I'll like link them other poems or like something else to read having them come back and be like oh I actually really like that do you like what I did with this is so rewarding to see them like taking stuff on boards just being able to like help someone with their, their journey <laughs> yeah definitely yeah especially mm. with something as vulnerable as um diaspora because i imagine a lot of these people are asking similar questions of like what is my relationship to brownness and yeah what is brown Um, existence in the west or wherever i think one of the like most interesting parts of editing for zimbabwe in particular was the like language stuff Mm. 
because mm. there are quite a few pieces that have words and languages that aren't in English. And most people, when they submit, they'll put them in like in English letters, but they'll italicize them. So as soon as you see the piece, you're like, what are these like foreign-looking words yeah. that you've italicized? And I've had loads of conversations with contributors being like, why are we doing this? Like, how do you feel? Like, I don't feel comfortable being like, I would need to do it one way or the other, or like having like a style guide. But I'll send them resources on like how italicizing something can other it. But mm. there have been other writers who have come back to me and said, no, I would need to put in footnotes with translations and so that anyone can access my text or others would be like, actually, I want to just keep the words as they are so that other people who speak my language will get it and they get like an extra bonus layer of the text. Yeah. But other people don't. So they're not like writing to a white or like an English centered gaze. Yeah, definitely. But it's, but that's kind of, this is sort of also the formation of like a third culture, because even mm. though there are terms from, you know, well, we have, we speak English, but then there's terms that we sort of borrow from um, our, our cultures, whatever they are, mm. and the code switching there, like, I guess yeah. there would be, especially if you're trying to edit together like a, uh, um, a magazine or a consistent publication, that you are going to have to have like a standard guide on how certain things mm. are, are written, and it actually helps get that message across to everybody that oh i recognize that word like that that means mm. that type thing um but it, it shouldn't hopefully it doesn't feel like you're changing too much of what they say yeah i wouldn't want someone to feel like i've just come in and be like actually this is how it should be yeah but i think yeah editing should be like a conversation and that most of my edits will be like questions instead of like change this it'd be like how would you feel if we change this what if we change it to this to yeah it's very delicate it's very delicate because it's um it also feels like uh therapy as well to an extent yeah like because <laughs> you're all asking bit. like oh maybe elaborate on that or like you know how did that make you feel or whatever yeah i don't know i was thinking the other day about how if you are a woman or like someone who is perceived as a woman you're often told like not to you know how like women to uh, like supposedly use humble or we finish question we finish sentences as rhetorical questions yeah i think like, I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion, but I think, like, speaking like a woman, whatever that means, is so useful when it comes to editing. Mm. Of just, like, being a little bit gentler, keeping things open instead of just being, like, change it to this, being, like, what if we changed it to this? Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's mm. um, it's more inviting. It's more, uh, like, less intimidating. Um, and yeah, I feel like... With a... Sorry, go on. And, like, especially with a poem or something that is quite intimate. Yes, it, it almost requires it. Uh, or writing in general. Like, I feel like I mm. definitely learned the most from women growing up because of the way that they taught. Like, it, it wasn't so, this is the correct answer and you are wrong. <laughs> it's like, how do we bring out your voice and your emotions into yeah. this way? And that's, it's invaluable. Um, but I, you mentioned that you had a sort of history with poetry and spoken word stuff ever since you were 15, which is really impressive. And I just thought I'd want to sort of, like dig into that a little bit more like what how did it start like your interest in poetry my interest in poetry I think I don't know I think because when I was like in I this is embarrassing to admit but I had a tumblr that I used to write poems on and I used to like read poems on had like my little blog yeah. and I start at some point I saw like a flyer for a poetry competition on like a notice board in school and I entered it and I won it which was insane and through that, I like got access to it was the Poetry Society's Foil Young Poets. Okay. If anyone is under seventeen and listening to this, and so I think it's open right now. But it basically gave me access to loads of like workshops and stuff. That's how I 
met other people who do poetry and I was like other actual like real life people do this this isn't just like a shame thing we do on tumblr then close the tab and go to sleep yeah so yeah I think that like helped a lot of the people that I'm who are in Zandawa now are people who I've met through that who I like knew of via the world of poetry coming from a background of poetry I mean like was your poetry in the beginning um also sort of related towards like similar things that you do in Zindabad now about you know this relationship towards brownness or diaspora or was it different themes I think in the beginning not really because I don't think I had the language to articulate diaspora or like other stuff I was obsessed with this online magazine called Ricky which was robbed by these white girls in America mm. and they published all these like little like feminist poems and stuff and I basically just wanted to write like that so I'd write like carbon copy versions like if you fed all their stuff into a bot that's what I was writing yeah. like, but I think after a while as I started discovering more poets of color I was like maybe I can <laughs> write about what I want even if um I feel like, like when I was younger the only like poet of color I could think of was you know Dolji Nagra what example <laughs> was it was it on i think it was aqa aqa i, I was on aqa, AQA. as well lad. no i've not recognized but it, it would have been around my year but then as i started like meeting other poets of color then like i could write about brownness in a way that is like not just for white people mm. but it was quite big for me like through the um, four young poets thing. This is a free tote bag that they gave me. Oh yeah. Right on my radio tour. Free promo. I met. <laughs> there was this woman who worked there called Nazmia Jamal, who was she's Gujarati and she doesn't work there anymore, but we're still mutuals on Twitter. Mm. So just having like another brown person in this really white posh seeming world of poetry was like, oh my god, madness. It's possible. Yeah, there are there are other ones. Yeah. So yeah, she ended up being in issue two of Zimbabwe. Oh, uh, the she... first issue. Sorry? Was it the first issue that she was featured? In the second one. second one. Yeah. She did like a little co- recorded conversation with her friend and they recorded it and wrote it up for me. Wow. I mean, and that's another thing, actually. I think um, on Monday evening, I uh, found Zindabad FM. So I was uh, driving back um, at night listening to this. I heard your editor's note in the beginning and then sort mm-hmm. of different po- po- poetries and like spoken word stuff. And I was like, this is... The feeling I'm getting here is a sense of like connection and unity that I've struggled to sort of have throughout my life because here, here I have other brown people talking about like things about like their aunties and their family lives and like also the feelings of of conflict and also this like also Mm. disconnect sometimes that the parents can have with their kids and these harbored feelings and also the articulation. It wasn't just hey I have trauma and this thing's going. It's it's very beautifully, (laughs) delicately and like powerfully written and it's it's um it's a unique experience in the sense that having a brown publication like this is something that i've never come across but then also to be able to hear it on this Mm. you know all all these people talking from all around the world not just england but america and and elsewhere just loads of different accents it was a really um remarkable experience um what went into sort of starting something like zindabad fm um, basically the reason I started it is not super exciting. One of the poems in issue two is by this girl Aisha Borja, who I knew through poetry stuff a while ago and she's dyslexic and I remember ages ago we had a conversation where she was talking about how for English A level she downloaded all her books 
that she needed to read available on audiobook. And I remember just I was putting the issue together. I was like, I think maybe it was before I started. I was like, it feels stupid that I'm putting her power in an issue that she doesn't really, that isn't accessible to her. Yeah. Why don't I? And I did some Googling and I was like, what if I just got everyone to send me like a voice memo of them reading their poem? Because then also, especially with pieces that had words in different languages, I can hear them say it. Yeah. And that really like brings their piece to life. Or like hearing someone read, especially a poem or an essay in their own accent, seeing where they put intonation on things. That I was like, Ooh. Yeah. It was interesting. And it was surprisingly easy to coordinate. Mm. Like after the edits I just said, please send me a voice note. It just has it doesn't have to be anything fancy, just on your phone or laptop. And then I put them on Spotify, which meant that even people who couldn't access who'd like I could also at the end of the day, like I'm an English lit student. I love writing, I love reading. Mm. Magazine print issue makes me really happy, but not everyone is as excited by the written word <laughs> as I am. Yeah, and it is about not just accessibility in terms of not being able to actually see and, and read this, but also people who just are very disillusioned with uh, mm. the arts, especially brown people, because I definitely <laughs> had an interest in yeah. um, poetry and a lot of things that were, you know, quote unquote white. Um, but <laughs> a lot of this stuff is relevant for everybody, you know, every human being. And that experience of just being in a car and sort of driving and then just sort of going through one one poem uh, one spoken word to another it's oh. a, it's a new exp it's a new experience like I, <laughs> I can't it's it's one of those things where i can't compare that to anything it's not a podcast it's not um i don't know it's it's not even really an audio magazine it's actually just these this new form this new paradigm of spoken word happening that i can imagine a lot of um my friends who are pakistani who have pretty much very little interest mm -hmm. in poetry listening to that and being like oh this actually really had an effect on me i didn't realize that we could That's represent so ourselves cool. like that i'm so glad you enjoyed it but yeah i think also because in pandemic times i was like what like because i'd never met any of my contributors or some of them i knew already but like i was like there are so many people who have spent ages on your poem but i don't know you i've never heard you read it out yeah why don't I just make you? Why don't I just make you send it to me? Yeah. And have you um since met um many of your contributors? Yeah, I met quite a few. A lot. Some of them were like obviously because of the uni, like the uni I go to, like stuff that I tweet gets retweeted by people who also go here. So a fair few of them go here, and I've since met and become friends with, which is nice. Yeah. But also, I went to a zine fair the other day and I had little stalkers in my bag. And there were some people like, oh my god, I'm in this. Or like the girl who, um, the person who illustrated the cover for issue two had a stall upstairs. And she was like, I made that. Yeah. And I was like, it's mad. Like, I've never met you. Then yeah. we had like a little chat. It was very cute. So like, now stuff is more in person. It's been quite nice to like put faces to names. Yeah. Have you had the experience of, I don't know, walking down the street or something and people have recognized you because of Zindabad? Down the street, that sounds like I'm like a celebrity. <laughs> I think the closest I've gotten to that is like at uni if I've like introduced myself and they've been like, oh, you're the girl who runs that zine. Yeah. Which feels very surreal. But like people who don't know me being like, do you, is that you? Yeah. Because especially if people yeah. recognize you, but you don't recognize them, it's sort of yeah, like, it's oh, very jarring. <laughs> I'm flattered, but like, oh, please don't hate me because yeah. I don't know you. Yeah. Um, and I, I think uh, one of the things that I wanted to touch on actually was this sort of theme of, so this is very much an authentic representation of brown people in diaspora. How have you sort of, has there been any sort of reactions from people outside of, um, 
you know, I mean, I guess I'm just talking about like white people. Like, how have white people sort of perceived Zindabad? And like, uh, have you had any sort of, I don't know, what what's, what do you feel like the perception of that is for people who don't, you can't pronounce Zindabad mm. or know what that means, for example? Oh, the one main one I'm thinking of is when I put the course for submissions out for issue one. On the like Google form, one of the questions was like, "This matters for people who are in diaspora. If that's not you, like you can literally submit anywhere else, just not here." Yeah, I'm like at this point, I had like two hundred followers, so I was like, literally, like I'm the most irrelevant person. Go submit somewhere else. And in the box, I was like, "If you do, like, do you identify with this term diaspora? If you're comfortable, tell me more about it." And this guy put in, "Not really," like this white guy, <laughs> and then he still sent me his poems. And was surprised when I was like, I don't want them. Yeah. I think, like, since then, being quite clear about who it is for. But I think generally most white people have been fine about it. I mean, they've got no other yeah. choice, really, yeah. innit? There are, like, white people in the issue. Like, I have a couple of the Eastern European friends who feel quite strongly about diaspora, like, Irish friends. Yeah. So it isn't, like, clear-cut, like, just for people of colour, even though I think it mainly does lend to people of colour. But I think being quite clear about who it's for means people generally know whether they're not welcome, but like who it is for, and yeah. what it is seeking to do, whose voices it's seeking to amplify. And how did it feel like rejecting him? Because it must be difficult when you're trying to build this inclusive space to. And mm. I, I'm not disputing that the you know you doing that. I think mm. that was the right decision. But like, how how did that feel like rejecting someone? Oh, I don't know. I feel quite bad every time I have to reject someone for Zindabad start I think because I'm I'm a cancer I'm a softie <laughs> but like I was I think I said in the email I was like you can like you can you could submit these to other places this is not the place for it and I didn't want to like give him my telling off but I was like you know I think generally when some people send poems in or like people send people send work in there is always way more work than I can possibly put in one issue so I'll always be like, please do consider submitting again or submitting to these other places. And if it was like a really good submission, I'll be like, submit here, here, here. They will want your work and they can actually take it. Yeah, because the, the, fact, the fact of the matter is there are so many places for someone outside of what you're trying to do to go and, mm. you know, express themselves. I, it reminds me, there was an incident that I had in a, a sort of online group that I'm part of, uh, mostly mm. people of colour. Um, that's kind of the point. And uh, a white person sort of came in and was like, hi, I want to kind of learn about what you guys have to go through with racism and racial trauma and I thought this would be a great place to learn and immediately people were like this isn't the place to do it like you know you're you're centering yourself because he said like yeah. I'm not trying to censor myself and it's like no you're literally doing that right now because I can't just say that and then be like therefore I'm not <laughs> yeah like this isn't Thai cross zoo like you can't just come in and start seeing the conditions of what brown or black people or whatever are in for you to be like hmm how do I be a better person um, and even in uh, someone trying to reason with this white person was like look you can still be an ally you know you can still go and learn about these things just you know maybe not here the only space where we don't have to worry about what someone's intentions are in terms of being racist yeah. and at the end the person did leave and i was like you know it's sad that you know i i personally don't agree with the idea of allyship in general i think it's just a it's like a badge that someone gets to wear by being like yep it's performative, I'm for isn't it like 100% yeah mm. and um he was like yeah I know but at the end of the day to reason with people who are outside of um these kinds of minority groups you've got to kind of make them feel good or feel like they have something to gain by not being problematic and it's a really yeah. sad thing like I mean I I, I, I would have done like I would have been a lot more aggressive Ow. yeah 
<laughs> yeah, because I mean, it's it's sort of like how how you know when, when racial trauma has affected all of our lives in this group, like coming across that, it's it's difficult to to sort of leave that to one side. But still, we have to appeal. I feel uh, to some white people's sense of you know you you know you can't be sort of included in this. This is kind of for us, but not in a way where we're trying to purposefully exclude you. It's just that yeah. we feel excluded in general. Yeah. Also, I think like as much as I think inclusion is generally a good thing, you can't be one hundred percent like you need to have safe spaces for particular people because otherwise, that kind of defeats the whole point of having a safe space at all if you're including everybody in it. Hundred percent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like everything, everyone has a perspective that's worth hearing and there's something to offer. But yeah, that the I it's strange that in inclusive in being trying to be inclusive, you have to also. Uh, exclude things or people yeah. or ideas in order to truly protect that inclusiveness um, mm. and yeah I, I don't know I think it was just sort of um, an interesting question in terms of how Zindabad is sort of perceived by people outside of it like do you have you found that for some of your white friends or people outside of um, brown diaspora I think that's what I'm going to keep calling it now um, <laughs> have you found that they've learned something from uh, Zindabad about like your culture I would hope so <laughs> Like, I don't know, I think a lot of people have, I think there is a huge value in kind of being quiet and listening sometimes. And I think Zanabad is kind of a useful place for white people to do that. But I think, I don't know. I think I'd rather want, I'd want Zanabad to focus on amplifying diaspora voices than educating other people. Do you know what I mean? I don't want it to be like, for white people to read like not mm. just white people but like for say like english people to read and learn i don't want it to be like a like 2003 multicultural britain diversity textbook i think that's weird 2003 specifically you know what i mean like yeah. you know like that like early 2000s like britain is just a melting pot we all get along yeah that's true. it new labor type type vibes yeah, yeah. <laughs> The second issue is obviously called Auntie's Issues, and I'm wondering, have any of your aunties or any aunties you know, um, what, what what's been their perception of it? Have they read it? Um, kind of. My mom is an avid Facebook and WhatsApp fiend, as like you can imagine. Uh, any, she's a like, real auntie then. Her generation is. Yeah. <laughs> so she has done a fair bit of advertising on it, and it's gone fairly well I think also because like I was saying about Nazmi who worked in the poetry society we always joke like she was kind of an auntie figure to me and she has a like her piece is in conversation with a friend about them being considered aunties by people and how that's kind of problematic why is that problematic sorry sorry why is that problematic sorry she was like when you become an auntie figure it means you suddenly become like desexualized and like old and people expect like more emotional labor from you mm. so i was really interested in like yeah like this auntie figure versus other like my actual like biological aunties yeah because in um you know in growing up every every mm. sort of brown woman of any authority is an auntie um, yeah. yeah like uh my friend actually growing up was quite like you know any sort of haram business that i'm doing i need to keep it away because even if i'm doing it in town or another could like city you're the haram police on the bus that's... being like i saw you 
<laughs> yeah, and and the feedback loop, like this is before like uh, WhatsApp was known by Listen. these aunties. They've got a, they've got a hive mind going on, like these random they really aunties. Are. Yeah, they know who you are as well. That's the mad thing. <laughs> like the feeling of being watched is real because. I think there's all there's an experience probably that every brown person's had in their lives where they've been watched by an auntie and it's been reported and it's like how the hell do you know? On the bus, like on the bus is that my, my bus route? Yeah. Oh, there were times where I thought I was safe on the bus. I'd go on the top deck and then I'd get off and I'd like see someone and be like, oh god, oh no, <laughs> I've been spotted. <laughs> I know that trauma gives like one of the things that happens after trauma is like hyper vigilance, but these aunties are on a different level of that. It's like ultra vigilance, like auntie surveillance, like yeah, and it's specifically aunties, like like Uncle G's. I don't know, Uncle G's, like they're they're mostly like I don't know. I I think they don't snitch as often. I I personally found that they keep it they keep it locked down. I think being Uncle G is like almost dream life, and that you can be kind of useless. Do you know what I mean? You can kind of just shuffle around water your plants. No one really bothers you. Yeah. And then you get you get the like side effect of gossip from the aunties, but you're not like as implicated in it as you could be. Yeah. And um I think there is um a kind of like points towards something like a, a brown boy sort of privilege. Like I've I've personally mm-hmm. noticed that sort of growing up that the uh burden of trying to sort of carry down values and be um asian of any different kind of way is sort of always on the women whilst the guys get to sort of um be docile and useless and stuff like it was a very common thing (laughs) in every kind of house that i've been to that wasn't mine where i would try and like you know pick up the plates after eating or something like no no no, sit down sit down like you know um, (laughs) yeah these sisters will go get it and stuff and it's like you, you see it from a lot of like brown guys lives that they've sort of grown up not being challenged with any kind of responsibility yeah, all their the life boys muddy coddled absolutely and um yeah. but i feel like there's also like no that's not a good enough excuse because if you're seeing some like unfair treatment and some sexism it's on you to go say mm. something about it and i feel like that's largely unchallenged in our culture and there is such a thing as brown boy privilege i mean obviously in the wider world like you know brown guys do get seen as you know overly aggressive and the mental health or often gets ignored mm. but within within these cultures like yeah. certainly they get off the hook i think yeah like brown masculinity is so interesting i think that's one of the reasons i was drawn to that photography series we were talking about mm. earlier because one of the pictures in it is of one of these guys who has like a buzz cut but he's just like lying down sleeping and he looks really tender yeah yeah that was just the one that, I like, softness and hardness put together i'm very interested in it's a little bit different from like that like molly coddled idea but i think yeah brown masculinity is all like multifaceted and interesting yeah definitely yeah because i feel like i i've also um grown up seeing well being a brown guy like you know i see brown guys as normal normal (laughs) people uh but like uh in the i think as i've grown older um i've also noticed that people are actually scared of me like actually intimidated Mm -hmm. by me on the street like they'll walk a different path or they'll look at me like i'm a threat and it's such a I just sort of, it was just something that, you know, when I was 15, 16, I don't think I threatened anybody, you know. I, I, I actually look similar as well. I don't look too different. Oh, but You're just a little guy. <laughs> that's it, yeah. I mean, th- I think that's the whole thing about, like, my relationship with brownness, as I was saying in the beginning. It's like, I was just born, and I didn't realise mm-hmm. that there was a whole host of things to deal with. I think it's also, the, the, the thing about anti-brown racism in particular, especially in England, as I feel like we do lack a lot of resources and unity and, like, 
this feeling of alienation is something that's shared mm. that, you know, I didn't know you a month ago and speaking to you, it's like, yeah, you know, what you're saying is something that I deeply connect with. And I just didn't mm. have the tools to articulate that for growing up in school. I, I was sort of led believing that racism was a sort of done issue. And also that, you know, anti-brown racism was sort of like, well, you know, we, we'll talk a lot about anti-black racism in the mm. curriculum, but anti-brown racism felt like it was an, a, an invisible thing or it just didn't happen. Or, you know, we were just sort of in the gray, we're in the middle of the- Yeah, you, know... you are fully in the middle, like neither black nor white. Yeah. And I think the one of the ways I felt it most deeply growing up was in terms of like beauty standard 100%. stuff and how like European beauty standards dictate so much of how like as a woman, like I move through the world how I'm seen by white women in particular, but like not having the vocabulary to be like a lot of, like when girls are like, you've got a mustache, that is racist. Yeah. But like so much of like how we talk about body hair is deeply racist. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. It's, um, and also now that I, I feel like we're at a time now where uh, Eurocentric beauty standards are not the, the main thing anymore. Like, you know, people yeah. are liking a bit of everything now. And now they're liking a bit of brown too. And it's strange to reconcile <laughs> this idea that, hey, like, n not even less than 10 years ago, like, this was seen as really? ugly, ugly, like, disgusting or having thick eyebrows, for example, which is not the yeah. one. But now they're all trying it. Like, these white models <laughs> are trying to look like us and stuff. It's, it's yeah. strange to deal with this shifting paradigm. Um, in issue one of the world, actually, my friend Nerissa wrote a piece called You're Not Ugly, You're Just Not White, which is about mm. an article, it kind of references another article called The Age of Instagram Face by, I think it's by Gia Tolentino, which is where she kind of analyzes all these like Instagram models and how all their like features that they've bought, like in terms of like plastic surgery and stuff, come from different cultures. And they've basically assigned all, like, assembled all these ethnic features onto a white body, and that's what we call beautiful now. Mm. And how messed up is it if you actually have those features, but not on a white body, you are ugly. But if you're Bale Hadid's, you're stunning. Yep, hundred percent. It's and it is complete racism. It's like even with the whole tanning thing, I never got yeah. that even growing up. I was like, so it's okay for you I to be brown. I never understood. <laughs> Maybe it's jealousy. It's jealousy that we just got like that natural melanin. I just remember like looking at like girls I knew like even in uni or something I'd be like how is it you're darker than me and you're paying for that yeah what <laughs> what is going on here like and you still hate me as well like you've still got <laughs> make a problem it make sense. you just want to be me on like... yeah yeah 100% <laughs> um but yeah it's it's strange because and it goes into sort of this idea of not only is brown culture's around sort of like the south south asia is sort of misunderstood but also mm -hmm. fetishized and i think we are sort of coming to a yeah. point now where i don't i, I wouldn't say being brown's cool or anything like from a western <laughs> perspective but like it's becoming more accepted or it's because it's i think it's definitely entering the limelight in a way that i've i've never seen it um uh, do that mm -hmm. and i think it's because probably of the internet and zines like yeah. yours that are allowing us to represent ourselves authentically without the the white or european gaze sort of um mm. kind of intervening with that and that's something that i think we've never seen before and it's really exciting to think about what could be really once we have the the tools and the power to represent ourselves especially like with you know daytimers uh, recently no. I don't know a lot about them and I haven't like been to their events. You know like daytimers like in the two thousands? Uh what is daytimers? 
I didn't know these were a thing until recently. I think they're so cool. Basically, in the 2000s, loads of brown kids, instead of going to, like, normal parties or, like, clubs and stuff, because their parents wouldn't let them, mm. what they would do is they would bonk off school and have raves during the day that were, like, for brown people and play, like, Hindi music remixes, all this stuff. And they'd be, like, proper, like, instance raves. And this group, or, like, collective, I guess, called Day Timers is doing them again this wow. year and they've become really really big and they're really popular so it's kind of mad that something that was like secret and illicit is suddenly like entering the mainstream and doing really well yeah and um these things were already happening before um you know brownness is being accepted mm. into wider culture and it always makes me wonder like what other kinds of fringe communities and and subcultures mm. were occurring ever since we sort of landed in in england really like uh especially yeah. like brown queer culture that's something that i feel like yeah you brown know... queer culture is so cool or like at that zine for i was at i met someone who runs weirdo zine i think it's called weirdo zine yeah which is for brown people who were in like goth or punk or emo subcultures yeah like in a space specifically for them which i think is so cool and it's necessary because growing up, mm. I never even thought that you could be like being a brown goth or an emo or whatever. Yeah. I was like, you, you can't be. Just and, a brown goth. Like. Yeah, there, there's no yeah. such thing in it. And like, I think it was even memes back in the day. I remember it was like, oh, have you ever seen like a, a black goth? Yeah, I bet you haven't or whatever. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? They exist, they're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and yeah, it's great to see that. And I think it also, like the art that could also come from, from stuff like this. I think I've seen a lot more especially thanks to Instagram um, of like brown creatives uh, coming out and expressing things that really uh, strike a chord inside. Mm. Well, what have you, is there any sort of favorites that you have like, uh, or people that you're interested in right now? Oh, in terms of brown creatives, I am quite interested in weirdo zine, like having like created their Instagram over the past few days, but also like, you know, juiced mag, mm. juiced chocolate. I do, All yeah. the stuff they're doing is so cool. Or especially their, latest issue when they had their collab with sisters c-y-s-t-e-r-s about like chronically ill brown people i thought that was so cool yeah like give voice to like a smaller obsession that we don't really hear from ever because i am quite busy with like uni and like other stuff going on in my life i realized that i like don't get me wrong i love doing in the bud like design makes me really happy i really like editing stuff putting it together but i was like this is a lot of work and i feel myself getting kind of burnt out yeah and on a level i was like i've had so many people in the past like months or maybe even like year or two been like hey do you want any help with this are you going to recruit a team i'd really love to help out and loads of people had like offered but i'd always been like no no no, it's fine i can manage by myself and i was like why am i doing this to myself why am i punishing myself like for no reason so i decided to expand into a team thinking that like five people would apply maybe one would be weird and i'd be like cool i have a team of four people it's all good 50 people applied and they all did really lovely, like, detailed applications, and it just took a long time to go through them Yeah, but... and do them justice. So I've gone through them now, doing some fake interviews, like, Zooms with people, because I was like, I feel like I'm most drawn to the people who I know in real life, because I know more about them. Yeah. And so it feels unfair to, like, just do it with that. So I was like, I wanted to try and chat to as many people as I could and get a sense of their vibe. Yeah, and how has that been? Because like. that's that's really strange, isn't it? Like something that you've made. Yeah. You've got all this sort of uh, people who really want to actively contribute and manage the the mag, yeah. and having to interview them is wow. 
I'm starting tomorrow and I'm a little bit daunted. I've said in the thing, I was like, it's not an interview interview because like, who am I to be doing that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm 19 years old and most of the people who applied are like two, three, four years older than me and have more experience than I do. Mm. So it does feel kind of jarring to be like, so what's your, <laughs> what can you bring to the role? But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it and I am genuinely like excited to have, to like be able to enjoy it properly without being worried about like I don't want it to ever feel like a chore yeah so having more people on who can like help me with stuff who can bring their own ideas their own skills like there was someone who applied just to be editing podcast audio Mm. and I was like that's sick because I can a lot of the stuff I've done for them the world I've like taught myself from googling but I can only get you so far yeah (laughs) do you know what I mean so it's been such a blessing to like read other people and like see what they think and also kind of weird because a lot of them are people at uni who I thought were really cool and like intimidated by but yeah. they've messaged me and been like <laughs> can I work for you yeah it, it, it's and, kind of fun. and also kind of like um not really it's not really like a job like they're not necessarily getting paid mm. for it but that matters even yeah. more that they they're actually wanting to give up their time uh, because of something time, that you yeah. made and they believe in it as much like it's really impressive it feels like um despite your sort of background in in spoken word and poetry and that being the sort of reason why you you started this that you're also getting into kind of like business administration now no like all my <laughs> friends are like see you're turning into a girl boss so i'm like i don't want to be a girl <laughs> boss that's why i'm doing this that's why i'm trying to like delegate it away from myself i don't want to be girl bossing yeah but yeah i mean girl bossing is just an annoying term but like there ain't <laughs> nothing wrong with like you know trying to be a ceo in this shit you know that's uh, oh <laughs> some gangster stuff you know can you imagine, like, I don't know, oh, at that zine fair, I did feel a little bit like a girl boss being like, yeah, this is my PayPal code. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> PayPal code. Um, it but... is kind of crazy how, like, some zines have, like, card readers that they bring, and they go to loads and loads of zine fairs, and they have, like, business cards and stuff. Yeah. Like, my mum was always like, you should, like, charge people more, you should take it more seriously, you should charge for events, but I've always been like, I just want this to be chill and, like, accessible yeah and not like give me your money yeah straight up and um how does your mum sort of perceive Zindabad like obviously being supportive of you and what you're doing has has she uh been inspired by some of the zines (laughs) she's very cute she's always like because my brother's 17 he's doing art edible she's always like you have to make something for her zine otherwise like you have to contribute something and she does like cross stitch and she'll be like can I contribute something and I'll be like my you're so cute (laughs) I'm not putting your cross stitch on this (laughs) But she's very, like, also part of the reason I did the audio zine was, like, because for her, I know that she would not feel comfortable reading through a whole magazine front to back. And I think she's, like, much preferred being able to listen. So she has it saved on her Spotify. Yeah, that, that's that's amazing. Very... Yeah. But yeah, I was, some of the stuff in it, I think it must be kind of weird for someone of her generation. Like, especially with the auntie, she's, like, herself as an auntie figure. Mm. To be reading that must be quite... Mm. Like, yeah. we were talking about that, yeah. That that's the thing. Like, um it's you this is sort of like the beginning of something that like we finally sort of relate to and that other people mm-hmm. might find like, hey, I don't quite fit into this or I don't completely sort of get it. Um after feeling that personally throughout my life for so long, it's amazing that what you're doing with Zindabad can make me feel like, hey, there is a home out there for me. There is a place where I can feel accepted, uh, for just, you know, being brown and like 
that question of oh how brown you are that's a question that we all should be asking in order to sort of form a new idea mm. of what that is i think that's a really really important thing and it's going to be certainly a lifelong journey and something that our kids mm. might our kids if if done correctly like won't maybe have to necessarily worry too much about that because the frameworks have already been put down by people like you and that's a really powerful oh. thing that's very lovely of you to say no that's okay yeah um i'm not trying to overflatter you or anything but i mean it's true it's just it's... me up yeah um but with this uh new team um whoever it is uh what are your plans for the future of zindabad oh that is a big question i think i really don't want to be more like in person do more in person stuff because there's so much of what i've done with it has been online and like you, you can zoom so you can zoom too many times you can get zoom fatigued i think we all know that by now yeah um i can't remember if i mentioned this and i don't know if i would have known about it when we were on call last time but the national poetry library like for some reason ages ago someone there ordered a copy of in Bud, and then one of my mates in a poetry collective women sent me a link to they wanted to start hosting they want to start hosting events with young people again so I applied and I was like, I have a zine, and they said yes. So I'm hosting an event in the South Bank Centre in July, like wow. doing more in-person stuff. Hopefully, that is one of the big things I want to do. And then, yeah, um, film nights, maybe more community stuff. Yeah, like Bollywood movies. <laughs> That'd be fun. Someone, one of the people who applied was like, I'm a film student and I'd love to do like a different culture film night every week or something like that yeah which i think is really fun yeah definitely because movies have been sort of the best way for me to sort of reconnect with yeah. uh, a lot of the culture that i felt like i couldn't belong to and in my own way like watching this stuff and having english subtitles and it just makes me be mm. yeah, that that feels like what my yeah. relationship to brownness is because i can understand what Believe. you're saying yeah yeah uh, i was thinking like when i was little my mom used to take me and my brother to see a film i think once a week Wow. Like once every other we used to go like regularly because she like she loves Hindi films, she loves Hindi cinema. So I was like going through Netflix like the two thousand section the other day and I was like, I know all of this. This is so weird. Yeah. Like I know too much about all these like, I don't know how she would have done it, like keeping like a five year old in a three hour film just occupied. But yeah, I think films are such a good way of getting in touch with your culture. So I'd love to do more of that. And also just more print issues more I also when I like one thing I've enjoyed most is like helping people with starting their own projects yeah for example like someone messaged me at uni about starting a zine called Yenta or the queer Yenta y-e-n-t-e ah. for queer Jewish women and I, and I was like let's get a coffee and I like basically told her how I started in the one and she's just printed her first issue wow so being able to like help other people and like watch their stuff grow has been really exciting yeah it's it's powerful um the fact that even though this is something that you know feels very predominantly sort of south asian like mm -hmm. it's you know you can take the same values and apply it to different kinds of minority groups to gr bring about that same sense of community mm -hmm. to those people who feel outcasted by mm -hmm. even the culture they grew up with like it's a it's a powerful thing for sure the, do you know the white pube uh no i feel like i've just said no to all the publications <laughs> i need no, to really they, research i think you would like them a lot they're this these two women who went to art school in london mm. and then decided they were like were completely disillusioned with the art world and how white and posh it is they do reviews like in their own voice 
So like one of them is working class from Liverpool and she like writes how she speaks and then she also reads them out. So just reading someone or listening to someone talk about art in their own accent is so nice. And that was my wonderful conversation with Sia. Long live Brown Media, Zindar Bard, all of that, all of that, cozy. When is this coming out? <laughs> I don't know. Roughly, <laughs> okay. uh, it will be probably around April time. April, like, I okay, want to say end of April, let's say then. Okay, that sounds good. Um, so yeah, if you if you enjoyed what you've heard in the episode, <laughs> um, follow Zindabad at Zindabad Zine on Instagram, Twitter, I don't know, anywhere else. Um, submit when issue submissions reopen and also we are hosting an event at the South Bank Centre on the 3rd of July which should be on the South Bank Centre website around the time you're listening to this so if you're around in London come hang out and say hi I guess 